chapter 1 and Lord's Day 2 of the Catechism. And we'll read the answers of the Catechism together. Answers 3 through 5, page 9, the back of the blue hymnal. First we'll read Scripture, 1 John. First John 1, verses 5 through 10. God's holy word given to us for our good. Let us attend to its reading. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins, and will purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. The grass withers. The flower fades. The word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. Lord's Day 2, Heidelberg Catechism, questions 3 through 5. Let's read the answers together with one voice. How do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in summary in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Can you live up to all this perfectly? No, I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. So many stories, news stories, each and every week where you see uh, such a massive shift, the massive shift of the moral, cultural, oftentimes sexual revolution, how modernism and the postmodern revolution has reconfigured the way that, that we think about everything, particularly life and death. A story that came out of the Netherlands that is perhaps illustrative of how uh, that country has gone from the doctrine that we're reading in the Heidelberg Catechism to the kinds of things we see now. There's some fuzziness as to the details of this story, but tragic story, a 17-year-old girl who indeed was mired in all kinds of despair and had experienced some horrible things, but 
She requested a physician's assisted suicide because she said that her persistent depression was too much for her to go on living anymore. In the Netherlands, it's legal for a 17-year-old to request physician-assisted suicide even without a parent's consent. Think about that. Children aged 12 to 16 can also make such a request, but in those situations, uh, a parent needs to concur and give permission. This girl, as I mentioned, had lived through some miserable situations, misery. She had experienced perhaps a lifetime's worth of pain and then some, things that would break our hearts. We ought to think about that and think about the pain that many like her often experience in this world. But what we notice especially is uh, the process of how this precious life came to its end. She died this past week. Conflicting news reports, some say that uh, she had received assistance from her doctors in order to bring about her death. Some say that it was a result of simply her refusing food and drink for an extended period of time. The worldview analysis, the the spiritual significance, uh, points us past these circumstantial details, and we ask questions like, how could those people around this young girl and this girl herself feel justified in ending her life? Her life no longer being worth living because of her anguish, as she said. There's a growing culture of death. Uh, It has come around on the beginning of life issues with abortion and what's called reproductive health or reproductive autonomy. Now they crop up at the end of life when uh, we leave the objective standard of how you think about these questions and arrive at answers. What you often have is a creeping culture of death. You cannot uh, make any kind of justification for why you can't tamper with the beginning of life, the end of life, and bringing about either of those on your own. Places like the Netherlands and Belgium and Luxembourg, all now who in their court systems, in their governments, they no longer have the ground on which to stand to be able to say this is wrong. You cannot end your own life because of the misery that you are experiencing. It doesn't mean that we're not compassionate about misery. It doesn't mean that our heart does not break for those going through these hard times. It's rooted in the fact that we recognize that life and the deepest questions of life, purpose and meaning, morality, destiny, they belong to God. So often we see the phrase personal autonomy. Autonomy, and that word comes up a lot when we think about worldview type things. Two Greek words that make up autonomy, atos namos, self-law. Someone who has personal autonomy is the one who has their own law. They write it themselves. They decide what is right and what is wrong. How do you get from Lord's Day 2, the law of God, the norm of God's law, that which is before us tonight, to I will determine through my own law whether or not I will die and how to bring about my own death? We get there, perhaps, by Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And thus he persuades himself that he is good. When there is no God, you can convince yourself that you are good. 
and you can persuade yourself further that whatever you determine to be good, you ought to do. Law unto yourself. In this picture, death becomes life, evil becomes good, and sin becomes our ever-present reality. But of course, the catechism brings us to something different. It's the norm of the law. How do we anchor ourselves in these questions of meaning, purpose, of right and wrong? It's something outside of ourselves. It cannot happen through a self-law, through personal autonomy. It cannot happen through these appeals to uh, what an individual feels or what an individual thinks. The law is a norm that guides us. It tells us about our deepest needs. It shows us our need for salvation. But indeed, it gives us hope. It's interesting that this section of the catechism is centered around man's misery, as it says. But to know where your misery actually lies is where you actually find hope. If you know where your misery actually is in that you're sinful before a holy God, but that same God is faithful and just and righteous to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Indeed, true misery leads to true hope. When we have uh, misguided ideas about what our misery is, like in the tragic story of this young girl in the Netherlands, misguided about what her ultimate misery was, even though no one should ever wish Uh, the kinds of things she had to live through. She was abused in several different uh, ways. But when she was misguided about where her, the the, the bottom of her misery actually was, it caused her to, to come to this conclusion that she should not go on living anymore, and thus what happens? She misses the depth of her misery. She misses the hope of the gospel and the kind of restoration That God can give out of brokenness. We're all broken people. Martin Luther said we are all poor beggars. This much is true. We're all poor beggars. And we need to be saved from sin. So the norm of the law, the content of the law, and the answer of faith. The norm of the law, the content of the law, and the answer of faith. Our Lord's Day begins, from where do you know your misery? The answer is God's law. It's not uh, my own emotions. It's not what I'm feeling on a particular day. How do you know your misery? And of course, catechism is thinking about something when it says misery. It's saying, how do you know that you are not right with God? How do you know that the one who created you stands above your life and says there's something wrong, there's something abnormal about the way that you're living? How do you know that? The answer is God's law. So the, the law of God is a norm, it's a standard, it's a criterion, it, it sets the bar and the bar cannot be changed by anything else. Martin Luther said that the, the word of God is a norm. He said it's a norma normans non normata, it's the norm of norms that cannot be normed. And it's the same thing with the law of God, it's a norm of norms, it, it cannot be normed because God has given it to us. But why is it a norm? Why is the law that God gives to us, why is that the standard, the objective truth for our life? Well, it's rooted in God being our creator. It's rooted in God in the being and the character of God as well. In 1 John chapter 1, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. When we read that God is light in 1 John chapter 1, that means at least a couple of things. 
It means that God is the standard of knowledge, that he is the the principal revealer of truth. He is light, and thus he reveals the truth. He knows only the truth, and he reveals only the truth. It also means that he is morally pure. He is morally pure. God is light. That means that he is good. He is the standard of good. So John says, in him is no darkness at all. Darkness being conceived as both ignorance and evil, sin. God is light. He reveals the truth. He is morally good. He is pure. He is the standard of goodness. When you think about the norm of God's law and how it tells us that we are in need of a savior, how it tells us that there's something wrong, you think of other things that people might use as a norm. And they might come to a very different conclusion. Some people who would view all things in this world through uh, the the lens of scientism or evolution, have an evolutionary worldview, and you can look at this world, and and if your assumption is that, well, if I look way back into the corridors of time, and, and I see how all these things have evolved, and the human race also, and look at where we are now, I might convince myself that things aren't so bad. Destructive way to view the world. You might view these kinds of questions through a technological frame of mind, technological lens, and say, well, if I look back even just a few centuries and look at the kinds of things that the human race had to do in order to get through life, and I look at what we're able to do now, uh, not only with the supercomputers that we have in our pockets, but all of the technological advances that we're experiencing, someday we're going to arrive at a, a situation where we can do away with all of our problems. I believe that that will happen, in other words. The norm of technology, the norm of evolution, might give you a different sense of how the world is doing, how the human race is doing. But when the law of God is the norm, we see that we are trapped in misery because we are not set right with God. And that's why it's so important to cling to God's word as the the standard of truth. So verse 7 in 1 John chapter 1 says, Walk in the light as he is in the light. Walk in the light as he is in the light. And here I believe, again, both of those aspects, uh, knowledge and moral purity are at work. To walk in the light of what God has revealed is, uh, or to walk in the light, sorry, is to walk in light of what God has revealed. To walk in light of his truth. To walk in the knowledge of the truth, that God is the standard of goodness, that God is the standard of holiness. We read in 1 John 1 when it says, walk in the light as he is in the light, it does not, it's not a a commendation of works righteousness. It's not the Apostle John saying, uh, do good and you will be saved. That's not what he is saying at all, right? Because we see just after this, it says the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin if you are walking in the light. To walk in the light is to live by faith in Christ. It's to walk in light. It's to live according to all that God has revealed. It's to live not denying your sin. It's to live not denying that you are sinful. It's to live heeding the law of God. What are the commandments? And do we keep these commandments? Or do we sin against them in thought and word and in deed? It's to humbly accept that what God says about you is true. 
that you're a sinner and that you must be cleansed. See, the law of God is more than just a code. A code is something like the speed limit. And uh, we all, maybe not we all, but many of us perhaps have a tenuous relationship with the speed limit, don't we? And we only experience the penalty of that code if you get caught 35, maybe you go 40, maybe you go 42, maybe you have a heavy foot, you realize, oh man, I'm going 55 in a, in a, in a 35, I'm going 50 in a 35, right? That's a code. A code only counts if you get caught. Maybe a more serious issue here is talking with some relatives this past week, live in rural Indiana. They're talking about how much the, the drug epidemic is such a huge problem out where they live, out in uh, Roselawn, Indiana. And the reason it, heroin and meth uh, use is so high is because there, there isn't the police force to be able to enforce the code. And so there's all kinds of opportunity for people to get away with it. And really, all throughout the rural parts of our country, we're seeing this happen now, even as we're seeing the, the culture kind of rip apart from from the foundations. That's a code. If you're caught, then you become penalized. That's not the law of God. The law of God is not a code. It's, a, it's something deeper than that. It's something more than that. It's the will of God concerning the nature, position, and relationship, the operation and movement and life of any creature. It sees all things, and it's constantly enforced. And when the law of God is broken, it's like something in your body that's set out of joint. If you've ever had something that's dislocated, and there's, it's amazing how just one thing is wrong in your body, and you know it something internal or a bone, and you just know that something is off. The law of God is more than a code. It, it guides the position, the relationship, the operation, the movement, the life of any creature. See, the misery that we have is, is abnormality. We live in an abnormal way as sinners because it's contrary to what God has prescribed for us. It's contrary to the life that God had in mind when he created human beings. That we would perfectly glorify him, that we would perfectly love him, and that we would perfectly love one another. That's the content of the law, the content of the law that we see in God's word in Matthew 22, in the Ten Commandments, and in our catechism. What does God require of us? Chiefly two things, to love God with our heart and soul and mind and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. To love God, to love neighbor there's a, a logical priority to that first commandment, isn't there? If you don't love God, you cannot properly love your neighbor. If you don't love God with heart and soul and strength, you cannot properly love those around you. It, it, it shows us the, the, the all-encompassing nature of the law of God. What is everything in your life to be about? How are you to view your job, your vocation, your relationships, your daily tasks, your recreations, your hobbies? How are you to view all of those? Are they oriented towards the love of God? Are they going to help you 
in loving God? Are they going to hurt you? The Amish are a community that has been of quite some interest to people in recent years. There have been all of these references to Amish communities as we've been seeing our own sort of normal suburban communities and and other communities that are are falling apart with the uh, deterioration of moral virtue. And so uh, the Amish have been studied and, and what's fascinating is that Uh, whatever we might say about them and their way of life, every single thing that is either shunned by them, kept outside of their community, or embraced by their community, it's uh, viewed through the lens of, will this help the building up of our community or will it hurt it? Will it drive us closer to each other or will it come between us and our loved ones? They view that with fierce intensity, and it's for that reason that they shun a lot of the electronic technology while embracing other forms of technology that they believe will help their community uh, to become closer. We are to do that with the love of God, to view everything in your life is, is this going to help me greater love my God with heart and soul and strength, or will it hurt same. It's interesting, isn't it, that what does God require of you? And there may be all kinds of things that he would require of us, but fundamentally, foundationally, it's, it's, it's not duty. It's not sweat. It's not hard work, though all of those things are good and great, and perhaps we work out those things as we think about the law of God. But it's love. Love. The foundational issues of man's life are from his heart. What sets human beings apart from mere animals? It's that we're living souls, isn't it? It's that God breathed life into us at the beginning when he formed Adam from the dust of the ground and he breathed life into him and he made him a living soul. Human beings have souls, spiritual, emotional constitutions that set them apart from the animal kingdom. They're volitional creatures. uh, We have an aspect of us that is working out of of the will and the affections. we're, we're, We're much more complex in that way, set apart as made in the image of God. So the law of God teaches us something about who we are as human beings. That we're living souls, that we're volitional creatures, that we're moral agents. We've been given this great responsibility as moral agents in this world uh, to live according to the truth and according to what is good and what is evil. Because of that, God says, love me with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. We might simplify, or not simplify, but we might summarize that by saying, if we are to love God and to love neighbor, it begins with recognizing God. We must recognize him as God. You cannot love God before you are willing to admit that he exists. You must recognize him. Then you must revere him. You must reverence him. And finally, you must respond to his existence and who he truly is. We must recognize him. 
Hebrews 11. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. And there I believe that the author of Hebrews is saying you need to remind yourself so that you are consistently struck with awe at the power of God's ability to create. Look at the world around you. And, and remind yourself daily that God made all of it come into being out of nothing. There was nothing, and then there was something. If you remind yourself of that each and every day, you'll be well on your way to recognizing God. But Hebrews 11 goes on. It says, And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. You must believe he exists, and you must know that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Psalm 58, verse 11. Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Do you live your life constantly knowing that and putting that truth before you? You must recognize him. Recognize that there's a God. Then you must revere him. You must uh, rightly know and see what kind of God he is. You can't image God. We're called to image him, to to imitate him because we're living souls, volitional creatures called to love God, love neighbor. You can't image God unless you fear him. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs 1, 7. Psalm 2, verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Do you know and do you understand that God is nothing to be trifled with? That he is not some kind of meek God. That he is ferocious. That he is filled with power and majesty. Glory and power. 1 Peter chapter 1. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Reverentially fear God. Recognize him, revere or reverence him, and finally, respond. Respond. James chapter 1. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Content of the law reminds us of who we are as human beings. Love God, love neighbor. He calls us to love because we're living souls, because the issues of man's life come from his heart, that which is not seen, the immaterial aspect of us. It's the content of the law. Finally, the answer of faith. The answer of faith. Verses 8 through 10, 1 John chapter 1. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. You notice how John kind of works in, in a circular way, particularly in this passage. Verse 8 and verse 10 kind of go together. If we claim to be without sin, we're lying or we deceive ourselves. Verse 9 has the provision. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To say with our catechism, answer five, can you keep the law of God perfectly? To say, essentially, no way, right? Not not a chance. To say that is the answer not of a person devoid of self-esteem, not of a a, a person who is unable to uh, pull themselves up by their bootstraps. It's, It's the answer of faith. When it's put to us, can you keep the law of God perfectly? When we say no, it's the answer of faith. Look at the way that the Apostle John says this in verses 8 through 10. He, of course, is a man filled with faith, a man who trusts in the Lord. And he says, if we claim to be without sin, we're deceiving ourselves. If you claim, if you think that you can keep the law of God and that you're not a sinner, you're deceiving yourself. Moreover, if we claim to have not sinned, we make God himself out to be a liar. We make Christ himself out to be a liar. Think about what we read tonight in John chapter 5. He looks at the religious leaders of Israel and he says, you all are, you're sinners and you need to be cleansed. The good news, or the bad news, however, goes hand in hand with the good news. If you know, if you can zero in on the problem, then you can find the solution. That's oftentimes the trick, isn't it, with cancer? Do you know exactly where it is and do you know how far it's spread? Perhaps they're going in to try and uh, eradicate the cancer via an operation. And uh, the, it's always the hope, it's always the prayer. That you know exactly where it is and it has not spread any farther than that. We're going to go in there, we're going to take it out, the cancer's going to be gone. The tumor's going to be gone, there's going to be no more tumors, there's no more cancer. And uh, the issue of man's life and his soul, the, the rock bottom of his misery is found in this, that he is a sinner. And the good news goes hand in hand with the bad news, because when you know the problem, then you can rejoice in verse 9 that if you confess your sin, then God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what it means to walk in the light. To walk in the light of what God has revealed. To understand and to know that his word is true. And to receive instruction. Right? The, the faithful person is going to be content to receive instruction. If you say with joy in your heart that you cannot keep the law of God, then you're going to uh, be prone not uh, merely to hate God and neighbor, but to receive the kind of instruction that will set things right. You're going to be content to receive instruction. You're going to be content to be made low. You're going to be content to be humbled before God. 
because you know that you cannot keep the law of God perfectly. And then finally, you're going to be content to trust. You're going to be content to trust in a God who says, clearly in his word, though you are a sinner, I'm a God who saves. Though you are a sinner, I'm a God who forgives. I'm a God who cleanses. I'm a God who justifies. I'm a God who is faithful to show mercy. For he delights to show mercy. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity? Who is a God like ours, who cleanses from every stain and every sin? So if we walk in the light, to say something that grades against the sensibilities of our modern culture, can you keep the law of God perfectly? No way. To say that is to walk in the light of God. To say that is uh, to have the answer of faith already. That no, I cannot keep the law. And it's for that reason that I trust and I believe the gospel. If you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. You make God himself out to be a liar. But if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just. And he will forgive you. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, and we pray that you would impress these truths upon our hearts and empower us to live in light of them by your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. We'll sing uh, three verses of our song of...